and welcome to Exhibitions Inhibitions, presented by Radar. Today joining me is Dr. Annie Go. How are you today, Annie? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> now, for the people who are listening who might be a bit unaware of your work and your writing, would you be able to let us know a bit about your practice? Sure. Um, yeah, so my name's Annie Go. Always throws me when people call me Dr. Annie Go. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me sound like, um, yeah. I'm a medical doctor or something. No, but I'm a humanities doctor. Um, yeah, so I'm an artist and a researcher. Um, my interests are predominantly to do with sound, um, sound technology, feminism, um, in their like social and political contexts. I'm particularly interested in gener- generative and computational processes. Um, and I'm a lecturer um, at Central St. Martin's um, fine art program in the XD pathway on the BA as well as an associate lecturer at um, LCC Sound Arts. Perfect, thanks so much. Now it might be nice if we start by talking about the more like the aspects of your practice that are about making art. So in particular, how has creating sound art helped to kind of expand and present those ideas that you address within your written work? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so, as well as being an artist and researcher, I think curating has also been quite important to me because just, you know, I find other people's practices fascinating and, you know, we we each have our individual stories and interests that kind of flow into our work. So connecting with other people, giving them a platform to present their work just helps me really kind of grow as an artist and as a researcher. So, um, yeah that's been hugely valuable um i don't know if i answered the second part of your question (laughs) i guess i mean that's a good starting point i was just kind of interested in how you use sound to kind of discuss like you have quite like a theoretical i guess background when it comes to the ideas you're addressing especially when it comes to like feminism within sound art and i was just kind of wondering if you could expand upon that and kind of talk about how sound has allowed you to discuss those kind of ideas yeah um I think one thing that I reflect on, you know, in as I get older <laughs> um, and as I talk to younger people like yourself kind of coming through your bachelor degrees right now is how, um, you know, when I was studying sound art and kind of audio technologies, they were really kind of quite heavily male dominated fields, both in terms of the people who were teaching me and in terms of the canon, it was very white, it was very male, it was very kind of hetero. Um, you know, I did my MA in um, Berlin at the University of Arts um, Sound Studies. Um, and so the kind of awareness of gender and to some extent race was implicit rather than explicit. And that came through later on as I kind of was able to reflect a bit more on what it felt like to be a kind of in the minority in many of the the circles I was in both studying but also at conferences or in performances or in exhibitions um, as a student Um, so I think that kind of contributed to um, a sort of politicization around the social context in which sound and technology kind of operate in in within kind of sound arts as well as um various forms of experimental and electronic music um so 
something about kind of sound and the way that it is kind of adjacent to music, but it's different to music. There's, it's kind of more open than music. Um, you don't necessarily have to be kind of classically trained to get into sound arts. Um, you know, a lot of people come through kind of laptop music or electronic music, or just some people come through fine arts practice. So there's something quite um, untrodden about sound that did draw me in that I felt was quite enabling because there was just, even though there is like huge long histories of um, music, um, sound arts is still relatively kind of young as a field. So I think that I found that as a kind of young person, I found it quite emancipating or almost inviting because you knew that there was still a lot of things to be done and said um, that, yeah, it felt, it felt quite exciting. Do you think that by using these kind of like technological processes as a medium, that it's kind of given you a bit more freedom in creation then? Hmm. I, so I get quite nerdy about like technology um, and I find that quite inspiring. So kind of learning to code. So when I was in Berlin, I started to learn how to code a programming language called SuperCollider which not having a programming background was extremely difficult, but I kind of relished the challenge and almost the torture of it because it was it was really difficult for someone, you know, without that kind of basis in programming. Yeah. But because there was this immediate output of making sounds, making weird sounds, sometimes your computer would crash because you put in the wrong kind of, you put in the wrong numbers to make a calculation that it was just sent it spinning. So I kind of learned um, through doing, but always quite output focus or you know I could constantly get the feedback of sound from programming so I only really learned programming in order to generate sound and within that I yeah I think I find the detail of it super fascinating so the tech the technology I mean things like kind of um you know um protocols um and you know how to how to do something and why something is done in one way and not another way. Um, also that comparison between kind of open source software, um, which is generally kind of free to, to download and use, but has its own problems. So lots of kind of forums and getting help from other people as opposed to proprietary software, which comes with um, certain things it's designed for. So, you know, composing music or electronic dance music or loop-based music, some things are kind of pre-given, which works fine depending on what you want to, to, um, to do or produce or make. Um, because I was quite interested in a meta way about sound and technology, um, working with those softwares allowed me to get really nerdy with kind of, dig into these obscure kind of objects that someone else had had designed. And I never got to the kind of next level, nerdy level of like programming those objects and other people being able to use them. I think that was just a bit too much for me, but I, I appreciate the craft that goes in them um, and really admire the people who, who, you know, sit around just for the love of it and kind of make these objects for free, you know, yeah, really just, as a labor of love and give them to the community and see who kind of adapts it and improves on it and updates it. And yeah, 
often you're using these processes to create the work, but you also include them a lot in like the presentation and including them like when you're either like performing the artwork in a number of your pieces, you're doing it live, or even the ones where it's more installation based, where you're using projection and object within a room. Would you say that including those processes within the display is kind of like help the audience to understand the concept and the work behind what they're seeing and hearing? Hmm. Yeah, I think there's always the kind of invitation to meditate on the technological processes that underpin a work and that deliver the work. And I think, I mean, it has been quite a trend in kind of media arts and sound arts in recent years, or I don't know what the latest trend is, but there was definitely a time when, you know, exposing your cables um, was, was a kind of conscious decision. You know, you don't hide them. Um, you don't have to pretend that it's kind of a magic trick that this is appearing there, <laughs> then and there. Um, so I think in most of my works, um, there is this kind of, um, yeah, offering invitation if someone wishes to kind of peek in and see how it's happening. Um, I mean, in some instances, I'm sure I have used a kind of black box just because it's not really possible or desirable to have like an ugly display of several laptops that I've concocted <laughs> connected together to produce whatever it was. Um, but in general, I think I, I'm quite partial to um, kind of explicating the technological processes so that if someone is so inclined, they are allowed to kind of know, um, or at least there's hints of what, what is happening behind the scenes. Mm. As a lot of your work is kind of about the, you're using technology and these almost like scientific processes to create the work, but then you're also tying it back to these idea of like fiber, uh, cyber feminism and other theories that you've kind of been touching upon. Have you ever had any difficulties in trying to like balance the two within a work? So I think it might be interesting to kind of dive into, I guess. You mean the so balancing the kind of social political aspects with the technological? Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know about difficulties, um, but I certainly felt that from what I was taught as a student, there was quite a separation between the kind of social and political and then the sonic arts or the electronic music or electroacoustic music that I was kind of being taught about. And I I certainly wanted to bridge that because I have a more general like researcher humanities background and that's reflected in my interests and my heavy kind of research approach in my art um, and performance practice. Um, so I think it felt that there was an implicit kind of separation um, in the kind of way that in, in the visual arts, I think, and in fine art, it has been more strongly debunked. So this idea of the kind of artist genius, um, I think there's been so many criticisms of that and, and different kind of challenges to that. Even though it still persists in certain ways, there is still this kind of um, slightly more egalitarian mode of, you know, anyone can be an artist um, whereas in the kind of, um, 
areas that I was interested in. It seemed that in music, avant-garde and experimental music, there was still very much this idea of a creative genius as a composer or as a sound artist, which then kind of separated the the politics of the everyday or, um, yeah, the separation of the personal and the political, which I didn't think, yeah, which I, I guess I was maybe a bit surprised at or I wanted definitely to push back at in my own practice. Mm. I think that's to do with the specific characteristics of sound art and music and avant-garde music in that particular constellation. Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, joining it to the social and political it's, itself seemed like a bit of a undertaking. And I think that's what, that's the approach that I then kind of found for myself within these fields. I do, I quite like how you're describing yourself as having this research and humanities kind of background as I feel as though it gives you kind of like, you're quite into the theoretical alongside kind of like artistic practice. And especially just because I've been like, as I've been researching your work to do this interview, you do a lot of writing as well. And I was kind of wondering, how do you kind of balance that ideological theory alongside wanting to present actual artworks, like physically in like more like typical art spaces, let's say? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do I do write a lot and I do read a lot because there's just such a wealth of things. Like I always, you know, I've got so many unread books right here on my desk that I'm constantly wanting to find time to dig into. Um, and there is a kind of richness of all of this kind of intellectual work that goes on. And I think that's the researcher part of me just kind of paying respect to this incredible work that goes on all the time um, that I find itself is kind of material for inspiration kind of as an artist and a practitioner and I think the decision of what output something has an idea has is kind of determined by the mode it you know it's kind of what do I need to to express this and some things are kind of theoretical interventions or interventions in text. Um, so an article that I'll write or a short essay or something. Um, whereas other things are perhaps more suited to a room installation, especially with the work that I do with sounds. And I was revisiting recently um, an installation that I did in 2014 called Myths of Echo, which I have been meaning to develop because that formed the kind of preamble to the project that was then my PhD project, which primarily took this kind of theoretical form um so i've been meaning to kind of revisit it with a with more of an emphasis on on practice um and that installation was really specifically about kind of um spatial audio and i used ultra directional loudspeakers and these kind of rotating i built these kind of rotating screens that reflected the sound and in in a particular kind of space you had these um kind of yeah rotating um kind of shields almost reflecting um ultra directional sound so it kind of grazed past your face um and that's very much an embodied experience that you know is about being in that particular space at that particular time that i can't really capture through a piece of writing so that that constellation of um in that installation it was images uh sound and voice 
as well as kind of sound um, and you know uh, uh, various speakers and these objects that rotated so that was the best form for me to explore um, that particular kind of aspect of spatial sound that I was investigating through myths of echo. Um, so I think the the outcome that one wants determines what form you choose. Um, yeah. Yeah, I kind of I really like that you bring up myths of echo because that kind of ties into a question I have here, where it's thinking on the research you've done into archaeoacoustics and even sonic cyberfeminisms, using that name as that's a recent, was it a book or was it an edition that you did? Just Sorry, just clarification. Yeah, um, so yeah. it's a kind of an ongoing project, actually. It's had yeah. multiple kind of outputs, including a symposium, a residency that we did at Wising Arts Centre with like 10 of us that kind of formed a, a temporary collective there. And most recently, um, Marie Thompson, my collaborator, and I, um, guest edited a special issue of a journal um, on Feminist Review, which is a journal, Feminist Journal, and we've got a, a book forthcoming on Goldsmiths Press, so it will be a book eventually. That's, oh, I, sorry, I just remember looking into that. It should be March 2021, isn't it? That one's coming out. Yeah. Someone around then? Yeah. March 2021, I think that was very um, optimistic. It's going to be <laughs> next year. So. <laughs> but Train Twenty One was the uh, feminist review journal that came out yeah. just now. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Sorry, got my ears mixed up. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe next. I think yeah. Anyway, it'll be it'll be some time because I think it takes a while for a book to get the final um, okay and all that. <laughs> but yeah, touching on both the sonic cyberfeminism work and your work into archaeoacoustics that you kind of touched upon in your PhD. How have you found the process of kind of forming a unique perspective and then to trying to display that externally, both through art making and art writing? Mm, I think that's where, um, you know, kind of you study um, fine art in the XD pathway. And that's where my um, kind of interest and engagement with XD, which might not be understandable to people outside of this <laughs> bit of a kind of microcosm of um, CSM fine art but um, I guess the best way to explain it to people outside of our circles is um, art outside of the gallery context um, which often includes socially engaged practices um, and or community-based practices um, and I think that's where this question really opens up of kind of what what is art, what can be considered art, is social practice art, is, is activism art. Um, and the, for example, the Sonic Cyberfeminisms um, residency that I mentioned at Wising Art Centre, that was a kind of week long residency where we did various activities. We designed activities, kind of workshops, including zine making, um, improvisation sessions together, we recorded texts, we had discussions, we cooked together, we did a dance party, like we DJed for each other. Um, we did all these different events and it was about kind of creating a kind of social glue uh, between us as um, interested um, sonic cyberfeminism people. Um, <laughs> And then the question is kind of that took place in an art centre, Wising Arts um, Centre. Is that art <laughs> is the question. And I think in my previous years, um, 
that I was talking about in Berlin, you know, art for me was something in a gallery. So if I do an installation and it gets put in a gallery or a festival or it, it kind of needed that authority of being in an ordained space in order for it to become art. And I think since then I've moved away from that somewhat and thought, okay, um, I think we, we need to open up what constitutes art. And um, that's why I'm, I think I'm really interested in process-based works and um, yeah, kind of works which do step outside the gallery and what then still constitutes it as art, as an open-ended question really, not as something which you or I are able to resolve. <laughs> Kind of leading on from that, because you mentioned some of the stuff you did in Berlin in like 2013, 2014. I was kind of interested in hearing you talk about the process of co-curation, especially with the CTM Festival, where you organised a few panels of talks and that kind of thing. Could you perhaps talk about how the opportunity arose and how you got engaged with it? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned at the beginning, kind of curation as an element of my practice is really important, just out of sheer enthusiasm. Also why I love teaching, love like getting an insight into how people think, what drives them, you know, what they end up doing from their own individual stories. Um, but how I got involved with CTM was um, initially as an intern. So during my MA studies, they had positions as interns. Um, so that's how I got involved with the festival and I think was just hanging around, being keen, <laughs> um, <laughs> noticing within the organisation, you know, trying to talk to the curators and it was quite a non-hierarchical place to work, even though there was kind of three main curators. Um, but, you know, there was like kind of one office really where you you were just kind of around people having meetings, doing various things. So I think I noticed that there was um space for me to influence first of all the music program um and then the discourse program so it has these strands at, at ctm festival as well as an exhibition program um, for the annual festival and they do they do other events throughout the year these days but back then it was primarily focused on this annual event and so i think kind of noticing those gaps um, and then kind of inserting myself so i think my first thing was i proposed my first only professional thing past post the intern thing was to propose a panel um a set of panels that also related to the music program so that was the death of rave um panel discussions that i curated in 2013 um and that related to some of the club nights so i got to both influence who was being booked at the club nights as well as put on these panels um so i think just yeah um being around and showing my enthusiasm to get involved in a particular way is the best way I can describe how I kind of transitioned from being an intern and I wasn't really making cups of tea you know in that kind of classical sense but you know you are very low down on the pecking order as an intern so I think I had to kind of show that I was really interested and that I had ideas uh, to put forward which then you know, luckily were seen as good ideas. And then I got to, over the years, then have more and more um, sway and was for a couple of years, co-curator of the discourse program. So I moved a bit more from the music to the discourse as well. And that just happened quite naturally, really. Um, so, yeah. I think something that's quite interesting is a lot of the 
both the discourse programs that you organize and some of the talks, a lot of them relate to your own personal practice. Like I'm thinking specifically about the archaeacoustic sound myths and meanings of the ancient, that was February 2015. <laughs> and then some of the ones that's about just like sound and gender that you did later on. How did you find that, well, more so, did you use those kind of talks to help develop your own personal, like, theoretical work, would you say? Yeah, I think you've really kind of hit the nail on the head there. I kind of used them as the discourse programme as a kind of sand pit for ideas, um, as a way of working through things that I was interested in and thinking about. Um, so that kind of proposing, I think each year we had to kind of propose ideas for the discourse programme, which also went into the... Um, funding bid so you had to kind of apply for funding from through the festival to um you know sometimes it was the kind of local government in berlin sometimes it was various national embassies um so having to be having to formulate a set of questions or um areas of interest um was the kind of starting point and then from there you can invite guests so if there was someone putting out really interesting work on a particular topic that resonated with what I was interested in and that led me to formulate this set of questions that could then be used as a basis to invite them invite them to CTM festival um, and it's not necessarily even about me dialoguing with them but bringing them in dialogue perhaps with other people and then seeing what happens um, yeah, so it tended to happen more along those lines, but it was definitely geared, as you rightly kind of noticed, geared towards things that I was interested in and I also kind of felt were relevant. And I think that's where, both as a researcher and an artist, you're, you know, being aware of what is happening in the wider context, including the wider kind of political social world, but also in the art or whatever scenes you're in, in those worlds, kind of being able to kind of sniff out what you think is gonna be, not necessarily like the next hot thing, because I think that can be a bit instrumental, but something which is interesting because it's not been thought about a lot or hasn't been addressed um, thoroughly or recently or in this particular way, bringing these particular things together. So the sound, gender, technology, cyber feminism one that I did in 2014, I think, um, was a kind of response partly to debates that were happening around the lack of women, um, well, women and non-binary people represented in electronic music um, uh, pre from the female pressure um, network and campaigning um, and bringing that together with the discourse of cyber feminism because that that was something that hadn't been talked about for a couple of decades so it was kind of reviving cyber feminism and thinking through sound and technology and gender through this recent debate so it's sometimes it's about connecting different things that are going on and that was the thing like I said that was the thing I kind of sniffed out to be like oh no one's done that before and that would be interesting to do, to bring these people together to have a conversation. Um, yeah, so it is more this kind of quite playful and almost experimental space that you open up. And there I could also say again, like, is that curation or is that also part of a kind of practice which is could be considered an artistic social practice because you're kind of bringing people together to have a conversation, to explore things. Um, I wouldn't, I don't really have any <laughs> answers on that because I think 
the participants would probably freak out being like, is this art? I think that's not really, that's kind of a very reductionist way of thinking about it. But I think what I want to open up is this idea of, you know, what is art? Um, this social practice of bringing people together is, brings out a lot of really interesting questions. Yeah, kind of building on that, just because I'm picking up on something that you mentioned just there with bringing the ideas of cyberfeminism haven't been talked about properly since like the 1990s. And then even earlier on where you're mentioning how you want to revisit this like myths of echo piece that you did a few years back. Do you feel as though there's almost like an obligation to kind of reflect and re-examine some of your past ideas and topics of interest just because there's still things you're thinking about and you still want to like see where they can go? Or is it just they just happen to be things that you're like, oh yeah, I remember I was interested in that kind of thing. Would you say they're like current kind of things? And Sorry, I'm trying to work out a good way to word that one. No, I mean, I don't know how best to... Um, it's a really interesting question, like why one... I think you're asking kind of why one is drawn to work or focus on a particular thing at one point. And I think it's... Mm. I mean, I think it's that whole thing of like, you only really need one good idea um you're only kind of yeah I mean interested in one thing sometimes I feel like I'm just interested in the same thing I've always been interested in the same thing but you look at it from all these different angles and you kind of uncover more depths and like layers to it um so I think practicalities determine a lot of it so you know for my PhD um I actually opted to do like a fully theoretical PhD which will hopefully be turned into a book when I could have done a practice-based PhD and I won't bore you with all the kind of decision-making that went into that, but um, that was to do with, um, you know, certain aspects of the the subject that I was interested in, what output, like kind of re regarding what I was just talking about in terms of when you choose what output for something. I chose the output of text and of a, a, a book eventually for my PhD. So it was more of a practical thing. And now I feel like now is the right time to return to address that more as an artist. Um, and a lot of that was to do with um, what we are allowed as artists to do, which is often a bit more speculative and playful. So I, I felt I had this feeling of having two hats on when I was doing my PhD. And when I had my researcher hat on, I had to be very kind of, um, trustworthy to the participants of my research the people I was interviewing for example um and then I didn't feel like I had the license to play with the ideas until I'd done it justice in this form of text and in this form of a serious investigation in the form of my PhD and now I feel more ready and able to kind of be a bit more playful which I think I'm I I allow myself to do when I'm in the role of an artist even though I think that the kind of the, there's a lot of grey area between artist and researcher, which is productive to explore. Mm. Definitely. I think just kind of, it's almost like slightly moving away from the concept of what you tack on your work. I'm kind of interested to hear in how you see yourself as an artist working within historical institutions, both when you're in Berlin and currently when you just undertook your PhD and you're working as a lecturer across a couple of colleges. How do you feel as though these have like impacted your relationship with your work and perhaps even just the wider institutional context? 
That's such an interesting question. These are great questions, by the way, Madi. <laughs> I think I would say that, you know, not everyone um, fares well with institutions. Institutions are highly exclusionary and often elitist spaces to exist in. And so many people, some people can't survive in them. Um, so I think I've kind of carved out ways that and relationships to institutions that have worked for me and I feel lucky um, to have done so and I think um, and I think that's quite an individual thing a lot of people work better just left to their own devices whereas for me the the structure um, and having a kind of role to play um, that institutions give um, us ha somehow helps the way that I work. Um, it gives me enough freedom, but enough structure to, to do what I need to do. Um, and I think, I, you know, I don't want to generalise too much. You know, there's some artists and practitioners who kind of just do what they do and they're completely happy or content maybe not happy, but content just to do that. And they don't, perhaps they don't need much or any external validation. Um, whereas I think what the institution gives you is networks and ways of finding people, maybe doing similar things or contrasting things or things which kind of overlap in a certain way. And then being kind of in dialogue with them. I particularly, like personally find a productive way to act and that's I think what um kind of keeps me within the institution I may at some point get fed up and go and kind of live by myself in a camper van in a mountain or something but at the moment it feels like <laughs> the right you know the right kind of um, um, amount of structure for me to do what I want to do in and um I think I wouldn't say that everyone should feel bound to institutions or that institutions are great. Um, but if you work in a certain way, um, they can be quite helpful. I really, I like how you're seeing it as like the role that you play within the institution is like giving you that kind of level of structure. And I was kind of wondering if that role that you have has been allowing to like share your practice like within like the next generation as to say and if there's been any like surprises in doing so mm. I mean that's why I love teaching because you know when you're in your early 20s you kind of you almost feel indestructible you feel like you're going to be on the edge on the cutting edge forever but then as you get older um your yeah your your interests and the things you think are really awesome kind of date with you um so i think the engagement with a younger generation is a big part of why i love teaching and noticing how conversations and debates shift um over time is really awesome um yeah so i think being yeah, the general kind of being in dialogue, both with students, but also peers. Um, me, yeah, it really means a lot to me and it gives me a lot. So I drifted away then. What was, <laughs> what was, what was I meant to be talking about? I just keep rambling around there now. Oh, don't worry too much about that. But I would, 
I think just focusing more on what you were kind of talking about there, something that I've kind of noticed when looking through your work and just your career so far, there's almost like this concurrent theme of like echoes and like reflections of the past through it, whether that's through like archaeo, audio, research, and even just your position as an educator. Would you say that like working within historical institutions and working amongst like these intergenerational spaces is kind of allowed you to respond to those ideas of echoes and reflections closely mm, yeah yeah you just reminded me i completely forgot like as a teacher as a teacher you know then I'm, i was like focusing on the younger generation but as a student i was obviously exposed to like much older generations and learn a huge amount from those people as well so i think you're you're totally right in saying this kind of intergenerational exchange um yeah Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> just um, what has that intergenerational exchange kind of helped you when your work has been focusing on echoes and kind of like reflections of the past? I'm only kind of mentioning it as it's been like a few of your works. Obviously, we talked about the myths of echo before, but even going back to like the speculum rotaris, that kind of uh, has that element of like echoes and phenomena to it. And I was just kind of wondering if you think your position in these intergenerational Thanks for bringing me back to the Speculum Rotarius piece because <laughs> I mean that was I guess yeah it was about echoes and ghosts really and the kind of potential the kind of supernatural um, beliefs around um, listening to voices from beyond um, capturing them in the ether through technology um, kind of speaking to ghosts, um, convening with spirits. Um, so yeah, there's definitely something in my work which is interested in kind of traces um, and um, ways that we can identify traces through technology and through auditory technology in, in particular. Um, I'm not sure how much that that particular thing is down to the intergenerational kind of exchanges that we were talking about in terms of your your lived experience of university and kind of um, being able to absorb um, yeah though that range of experiences but it has definitely um, come through my research because then when you're researching a phenomenon like electronic voice phenomena which was the subject of that speculum retarius piece um that that necessitates kind of looking into books and doing bits of research um and interestingly i think compared to what i was just saying about my phd i immediately because that was fairly well trodden and i had already found quite a lot of um research including artistic research by someone called joe banks on that particular phenomenon which i took a lot from and thought was um really interesting i that then gave me the permission to be a bit more playful and do my own spin on it um so yeah i kind of felt more able to use my artistic license in that particular constellation of um yeah ideas and things but um but yeah, that's interesting that you've pointed that out. I think this idea of echoes does kind of stretch back quite far um, into my practice. Wanting to kind of draw this more back to what you 
think maybe people who are just kind of beginning in their careers and trying to work out these like balances between the theoretical and what kind of ideas they want to present just really have there been any experiences of trying to show your obviously sound art isn't exactly like something people can look at it's not and a lot of art spaces aren't really designed for anything besides the things you can look at just wondering have you has there been any experiences where you've kind of been I don't know just where there's been a difficulty like within a space or perhaps something you've wanted to do within a space you've had difficulties doing or just really any exhibition experience you've had around sound art that's been interesting um yeah I mean I think what you say is totally right in that sound arts even though they're kind of more and more present they're still less present in the wider art world so from an exhibition point of view one does often have to negotiate um when you um are allowed to make sound with your work and not so i think but because um i was often working with other sound artists and we would often be um working in a space together there was a, a greater understanding when you're working with other people who work with sound um, a lot that there needs to be a negotiation of um maybe a rotation of whose sound is on at particular points um and that's something i think that kind of comes part and parcel with doing sound arts but when you're thrown into an exhibition um i was thinking i was reminded recently um actually as i'd invited an old um colleague um from berlin to come and give a guest lecture at lcc daisuke ishida that um many years ago probably 2009 10 we had in berlin some friends and i had um got the keys to this old morgue and it was like more than 100 years old and it was kind of in between uses so we could rent it out and we used it as an art space and we put on kind of exhibitions and concerts there and it was really creepy <laughs> um and we did a halloween party there of course because it fell <laughs> it was halloween when we were there. um and i think i think we did um sound installations there you know everyone who was part of the collective who wanted to and some guests everyone kind of contributed there was so much space everyone could pretty much have a room if they wanted and there were some bigger spaces so what you know that that's what i mean that in that context it was kind of a given that you would negotiate when and who was playing sound um if someone was doing something loud then there would have to be a discussion about when you could hear the quiet pieces so they might be then in the program booklet you could hear this piece at this time i can't remember how we really did it but um but then in a visual art context yeah you do have to um especially working with curators who are more uh, trained to work with visual arts you have to make it really clear to them i had this so electromagnetic microcosm which was a um kind of a sculptural electronic uh sculpture that i made it was really loud and disruptive and it had very high pitched noises when it was on um and just for the sanity and the sake of everyone who worked in a gallery <laughs> um i opted to have it as a as a switch button so that anyone who wanted to experience it just switched it on 
um, when they were directly studying in front of it rather than it being constantly on because that would have just driven everyone mad and also interrupted all the other works including kind of video works with audio even just um, you know kind of paintings or visual works you know just having this grating high-pitched noise would have been really unreasonable for me to expect as a sound artist to have like 24 7 um, on <laughs> in the gallery so I think um, I didn't have to butt heads with anyone about that I think that was just a decision that I was like this makes a high-pitched, quite horrible noise, which is part of the installation, but I really don't need to impose that on everyone. <laughs> it has been really lovely kind of just hearing the balancing of like practicalities around art, as I feel like that's something that people don't really address when they're like making it, especially like when they haven't quite learned that experience of needing to think of the practicalities yet. Just kind of, I guess, touching on that and understanding that we have covered quite a bit in rather a short time. Do you have any final ideas or tips, do you think, just being reflective of your journey so far for people who are perhaps still trying to like start out and get their work shown? Yeah, I mean, thank you for all these really insightful questions, Maddie. Um, and um, I yeah, would say that I think I think collaborating with people in different ways is really important kind of it's such a horrible kind of faceless word but networking and I always <laughs> try and like kind of clarify that I don't mean that in that like gross kind of instrumental way of just like using someone for their contacts but um finding people who you get along with who you share similar values and ideas and interests with because those are the things that sustain you you know things always get difficult or I don't know something terrible happens either in your career or in your personal life and you know if you're just kind of alone you're more likely to admit defeat or um yeah I don't know just disappear or stop doing stop bothering with something so I think I really just recommend um finding like-minded people who you want to work with and that can be in any form it can just be that you share a studio together and you never work together but you kind of um have that daily interaction and you talk about your work with these people or it could be that you find a collective or you're in a duo where you find you've got so much you know in common that you want to work together and, and produce things so i think that would be something i would really advise um, people to do and I think um, um, putting on events or being kind of um, putting on events I think has been something important to me and that kind of comes into networking but bringing people whose work you think is interesting um, try you know finding a reason to get in touch with them and to work with them um, I would really recommend um, people who are starting out in their careers to do that perfect well thank you so much for that just as is something i ask everyone that i talk to is there anything perhaps you want to link to like your personal website or anything you just want to mention it toward the end um i would yeah i'd like to give a shout out to the the aforementioned special issue of feminist review on sonic cyber feminisms which was published in March um, 2021. And we've actually secured free access to, I think, three or four of the articles for 90 days. So 
Um, I'm not sure if our university has access, but for the wider public, you know, unfortunately, a lot of academic work is behind a paywall, which is completely exploitative because that money does not go to the people who write the articles because everyone writes everything for free. And it's all it's a lot of free labor that goes into these things and the corporations get rich <laughs> off them anyway. So um, I would yeah make people aware that you can access um, some of the articles of that special issue, including the introduction that um, Marie Thompson and I co-wrote. Um, and yeah, people are welcome to look at my website, which is still in constant need of updating and completing because um, I still haven't included, I think, anything prior to 2010, just just because I haven't got around to it. But there are a few other things that I did before then that I should probably put up there at some point. But yeah, that's anigo.net. That's me, I think. Perfect. Thank you for the opportunity to give myself a little bit of free promotion. Um, and for your super thoughtful questions, I hope some of that rambling was interesting to your audience. It's been lovely hearing from you and just actually, it's one of those things where like, I've known you obviously through university, but I've never actually got to hear you talk about your own work before. So it's been really enjoyable. So thank you so much. Oh, well, it's been lovely to chat to you too, Maddie. Um, it's been a pleasure and good luck with the rest of the podcasts. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Annie. This has been Exhibition Inhibitions. Thanks so much. Bye.